Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Libby. Uh, as you know, I'm Nikki Sundstrom, the Director of Social Media and Public Engagement for the University of Michigan, but I would love it if you would formally introduce yourself to the Michigan Minds podcast audience, and then also share a little bit about the research and interest focus areas that you have. Sure. Thank you for having me, Nikki. I'm happy to be here. My name is Libby Hempel. I'm an associate professor of information in the School of Information and a research associate professor at the Institute for Social Research. Those are my faculty appointments at U of M. Um, I'm also a director of the Resource Center for Minority Data at ICPSR. So I work with data as well. Um, and my newest title is the associate director of the Center for Social Media Responsibility, which is uh, affiliated with the School of Information as well. Uh, my interests are in the implications of social media conversations for social and political systems. So why does what we talk about online matter is essentially what I'm interested in. And I study uh, politicians, celebrities, and political extremists. And I try to understand how those three groups are related. How do the conversations that they have online impact the rest of us, both on and offline? Um, and I do so using primarily computational methods, uh, but sometimes qualitative methods as well. Wonderful. Well, first, congratulations on your new appointment. That's very exciting. Thank you. I, I happen to be very familiar with the Center for Social Media Responsibility and grateful for all of our ongoing and past collaborations with my office for the socialintegrity.umich.edu project. Um, but I'd love if we could hone in on the center for just a moment and you could tell sure. us a little bit about the work and the mission that it has. Sure. So the main mission of the center is to help platforms. So this, so this is like Facebook, Twitter, even Parler, if we get to that, mm -hmm. uh, meet their responsibilities to the public. So we assume that platforms have responsibilities to the public uh, and that they're falling short. And what can we do to help them understand where might they be falling short and what are some avenues um, to do better? And so we're interested in ways to address the negative effects of platform communication and to amplify the positive effects. So we'd like to see less vitriol, more social support, as an example. Absolutely. Well, the timing of our conversation today shouldn't come as you know any surprise. Um, <laughs> social media is is really uh, active currently, mm -hmm. um, as have a lot of different communities been over the course of the last twenty four hours. So, um, as we've seen, kind of previously even play out, social media's role in the last. 24 hours of uprising um, and protest in the Washington DC area and even across the nation as we've seen mm -hmm. this morning um, is not really new um, in terms of the history of, of social media. So can you talk a little bit about the similarities and differences between what's currently taking place and what you know perhaps we've seen over time from the infancy of social media and you know even 2020 right we saw a lot of this kind of play out so i'm intrigued to hear your expertise so it's can you believe that when i first started studying social media in like 2010 2011 maybe um the reviewers or people who i talked to in the press would say well it's not really gonna matter and here we are and i'm like oh it's gonna matter just you wait 
social media does matter, but figuring out how and in what ways and when might it not. Um, I appreciate that you, you noted that there are some similarities and some differences. So I'm gonna talk about one similarity and one difference that I think are stand out most about what happened yesterday in the US. The first is the difference. So the biggest difference that I see between this protest turned riot and other protests turned riots that have happened in the past is just the remarkable lack of preparation and response from bystanders, law enforcement, um, the, the sort of the public in and around that space. Um, and I think that that is the biggest difference between yesterday's riot and other riots that we've seen. Uh, that law enforcement especially is acting like they're surprised that this happened. Um, when I don't think that it's actually surprising to anyone who was arrested in any peaceful protest over the summer, um, but uh, it was surprising to some apparently or it wouldn't have happened. What I think is more interesting though is what's the same. So extremists use social media to incite violence without consequence every day. And some examples would be the Arab Spring or the Rohingya genocide in Myanmar that what's different about it this time is that it happened here, um, but the social media platform's complete lack of response was not new at all. Uh, and I think that it was sort of both upsetting and welcome that social media platforms responded finally last night and this morning um, to say, oh, turns out actually you can't do that here either, where here is either on a US company's platform or here in the United States, but be like, no, turns out um, we did mean to draw the line at incite violence and we just weren't really paying attention. Um, and I think that it's disappointing that we had to get to actual physical harm. Someone died. We didn't need to get there in order for platforms to recognize that they have a responsibility given the way that people use them and the scale they can reach and the velocity with which things travel, um, that they have continued to let extremists incite violence over and over and over again. The difference is this time it happened in the US. You mentioned something at the beginning of your response about kind of the perception and reality of how people used to view what social media's impact would be. And it reminded <laughs> me, right? It reminded mm -hmm. me um, of when I started around a similar time frame. And used to talk about how eventually what you post online could get you fired, for example, mm -hmm. right? Like there's real life consequences or will be someday for the way you interact on the internet. And I know just anecdotally that this is something we constantly kind of educate and try to talk to sure. people about. That's part of the social integrity um, website's mission. But I'm particularly interested based off kind of your feedback, which you just provided beautifully to yesterday, you know, there's been a lot of images and a lot of selfies that we saw being mm -hmm. taken. Um, from a behavior standpoint and even an influence standpoint, what are, what are your thoughts on that? How does somebody perhaps walk into work the next day or, mm -hmm. you know, what accountability measures do you foresee? That's a great question. I think as a, I'm thinking of first of as a manager, right? I have these administrative titles, and if somebody who worked for me was involved in an insurrection, they wouldn't work for me anymore. But I don't know that that's actually true for everyone. So one thing that's happened, I know um, there are a couple of people who 
so some of the, some of the, I guess I don't know if it was rioters or protesters who came from Michigan. So I think it's clear that there's some subset of folks who were at what was a protest and then became a riot at the Capitol. Um, and there was a group from Michigan who left the suburbs yesterday morning and drove to DC to be part of the protests. I don't know whether they were also intending to be part of the riots or not. Um, but I think one of the things that happens there is that people were announcing that they were headed out. They say, here's why I'm going. And then they get to DC and they say, here I am. There's pictures of folks on the Ohio Turnpike saying we're on our way and here's our Trump paraphernalia. Um, that this sort of, we often talk about this obsession with documenting our daily lives or photographing our lunches or something as though it's something that just a few people do or just the youngins do something. But I think we can see based on the rioters yesterday that they're not immune to the dopamine effects either. That like, oh, I'm so popular. Look at my, look at how many people liked my posts. Um, especially in their when they're using new platforms like Parler, where the sort of the routes to popularity aren't clear yet. But they're like, oh, I could be the next Parler influencer if I can just get my photo up. Um, these are not kids. These are not lunches. But the the process is the same. The like, I want you to notice me. I want you to see what I'm doing. Uh, and then I would hope that for everyone who was part of the riot part of yesterday is held accountable both by law enforcement and by their employers, but even more so by their friends and their family. That I would hope that people are able to say what you did was wrong. And even if you don't get caught, and even if you didn't take a selfie, which I don't know if anybody didn't, um, but what you did was wrong and dangerous and not acceptable. Uh, and I was, I have a young son and we were talking yesterday about what should the consequences be for people who have done this? Um, and I don't know who listens to this who might have kids, but I often find that parenting a young American and understanding how to mitigate disaster on social media have a lot in common. So yesterday we were talking about, you know, what are our responsibilities to other people? We should treat them with kindness and respect. What do we do when people don't treat others with kindness and respect or when people break the rules? And we talked about whether folks, is this the kind of thing that people can say that they're sorry for and then offer to make it better? So that's something that we often do with young kids and it looks a lot like restorative justice where you acknowledge the damage that you've done to the community and you offer to find a way to repair the harm. Uh, and so I would hope that there's a way for us to commit to restoration instead of just retribution in this case as well. But restoration doesn't mean that there aren't consequences. You can still lose your job. So I would hope that we can get to a place where people are held accountable, but that doesn't just mean punishment. It might also be re-education or um, some commitment to repair that would be useful both for them to recognize the relationship that they ought to have to community, um, but also for the rest of us to heal instead of to just continue to escalate um, what was really a tragic scenario. 
You mentioned age demographics and sort of assumptions that many people make about who posts to social media. And I think it's so fascinating um, based on just kind of some of the coverage from yesterday in particular, but in the capacity and, and understanding of what people think will happen when they interact on these platforms. And it reminds me of, of conversations I've had in classrooms on, on the college campus, right? Once you post content, it no longer belongs to you and you can't control where it goes or what comes about on behalf or because of it. Um, and yeah. I think you're you're exactly right. A lot of people are going to potentially learn that lesson the hard way, perhaps yeah. um, very soon. So you mentioned parlor and I want to make sure that we dig into that as kind of the new kid on the block in terms of what we would now view as traditional social media like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. So can you share with us what exactly Parler is um, and more so about the evolution of online connectivity and the perception of censorship or discrimination, which has been sort of associated with its popularity? Sure. So Parler uh, bills itself as a quote unquote free speech platform. Uh, it actually looks a lot like early Twitter, um, only it's like reddish pink instead of blue, uh, but it's like, Individual users post short messages that are then fed in a timeline to other people to see. You can follow folks, you can search for terms, et cetera. What's different is that um, Parler is, even though it wants to eventually be an ad supported network, uh, right now it's financially backed by deep pocketed conservatives who like less control over what they are allowed to say, I think is maybe how I'll phrase that. Um, and part of why Parler has become popular, so it's actually been around for a few years, but it hasn't had much user base until relatively recently. Um, part of what makes it popular now is that it claims that you can say what you want without being deplatformed. So there's this, well, mostly US conservatives claim that social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, have been silencing them uh, by kicking them off when they break the rules of the platform um, and that those silencings are politically motivated. What I think is actually happening, um, what they see as deplatforming or as shadow banning is more likely that they're learning that the audience for their message is just small. And so they're getting washed out by other things that people are more likely to talk about or that incitements to violence, even if you're joking, are against the rules in some places. So Parler has different rules. Um, the mechanisms for enforcement of the rules on Parler are also different. So they rely on the courts uh, for things like libel and defamation. Um, I don't know if you or anybody who's listening has ever tried to sue someone for libel or defamation, but that's not really an accessible route to retribution or restoration for really anyone at all. So basically there's no rules on Parler um, because the ones that they do have are unenforceable. Um, what I think is interesting about the sh shift from Twitter or Reddit or something to Parler uh, is that, well, well, there are a couple of things. So one is that um, Parler claims to want to verify people. So you submit sort of who you are to say, I'm a verified human. Uh, and that's something that separates Parler from both Twitter and Reddit, where there's no verification process. You can sort of be who you want to be. And that's part of what was popular about Twitter and Reddit was that you could be anonymous or pseudonymous. 
but not uh, but Parler has a mechanism for being verified that's easier than Twitter's verification. So there's something happening around people wanting to attach their offline identities to their online selves on Parler that I think is interesting. The second thing that I think is interesting is we've been talking about whether there are age demographic differences between how people use social media. And what I think is really interesting about the move to Parler is that Parler is still performative. So when you post something on Parler, you do it so that many people will see it. This is not a signal message. It's not a private WhatsApp group. It's a public space where you're saying, see me invade the Capitol, see me drive through Ohio to go protest. Um, see me tear something down, see me damage public property. Uh, that is to everyone on Parler, see me do this, not, hey, friends in my secret signal chat. Um, so I think that that public performance uh, is still important to people who use Parler uh, in a way that it's not for the folks who are in private chats or less accessible spaces. Because um, all you need to get on Parler is an email address and then you're set. Uh, and you can find a lot of what you're looking for um, and a lot of what you don't want to see. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny. We um, we have so much ground to cover, but I enjoy talking to you so much because you mentioned Signal and that makes me want to go down the Elon Musk tweet route today. But I'm going to... Oh, yeah, right? Didn't Elon I'm going to refrain go to because I want to dig into um, the action of Mark Zuckerberg today to okay. actually announced the permanent removal of access to both Facebook and Instagram for, for President Donald Trump. So mm -hmm. can you um, share kind of the implications of the decision? You know, was it time? Did he wait too long? <laughs> From an access and ethics standpoint, like what foundation are we now laying? Yeah, well, I think that um, a couple of things. So one, uh, this is not the first time that Trump has violated Facebook's rules. So we can have a whole separate conversation about whether or not we think Facebook has the right rules. But under Facebook's rules that they have set for themselves, Trump has incited violence or has, I forget what else Zuckerberg said was wrong. I'll go look it up. But he's done that before. What's different is that Zuckerberg is staring down a Democratic Congress and a public that's fired up about some obscure laws about how information should travel online. Um, and that there was a violent insurrection in our country. So now the stakes have changed a little bit for Zuckerberg. Um, I mean, I think to say that there are stakes for a billionaire is hard because like, what's he gonna do, lose a billion dollars? That to you and me, that sounds like a, a lot. To him, that's like what he donated last year. So it's not that much money. Um, but I think it's too late. I think that he should have done this a long time ago. Um, but the in part because if you're gonna say that there are rules, then you need to enforce them consistently or people won't follow them or respect them. And I think that's what we've seen from other folks who are not um, Donald Trump level public figures. And so, you, if you're gonna have a rule, you need to apply it consistently and Facebook hasn't done that. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting uh, is that this, I worry that President Trump is not actually the problem. And so we can see this on, or like a single account is not actually the problem because the person's account and their ability to post often becomes 
the virtual place where their supporters gather. So it's not, the danger isn't just in what Donald Trump says, but it's in the organizing that occurs in the comments about what he has said. And so as Twitter is finding, so Twitter shut off his ability to post yesterday afternoon, but they didn't close comments or replies or retweets on anything that he had already posted. And so he's not able to generate new content, but the conversation about what he had said is already happening and can already continue. So shutting Trump off didn't stop it on Twitter. And I don't think it's going to stop it on Facebook, in part because a bunch of the Stop the Steal organizing happened in private groups. Uh, and private groups is like playing whack-a-mole that as soon as you shut one down, a new one comes up and there just there isn't a way to keep track of it. So if the core feature of your platform is to boost Act sort of newsworthy, let's be generous, is to boost newsworthy content, um, then you have built your platform for exactly what happened yesterday. And if you don't change your platform or what it's for or how it works, then that's going to happen again somewhere, whether it's in the US or North Africa or the Middle East or Asia, the UK, Ireland, Spain. And that's just what I could come up with in 10 seconds. Um, that if you're, if that's what your platform is built to do, and that's what Facebook is designed to do, is to spread information and to bring folks together, uh, then that's what they're going to do. You, you really affirmed a conversation that I was having on this exact topic earlier this morning, right? It's kind of like putting a, a Band-Aid on a waterfall to try to, you know, stop. <laughs> water from coming through right you're um, like but look it's not coming from there you're like we're already drowning it's <laughs> the meme over the last year of like the person just trying to like stay above water so many times <laughs> but you mentioned laws and I think this is particularly interesting because this administration has really made section 230 like common vernacular which is something most people really didn't know existed before and i think a lot of people still struggle to comprehend what the de debate about it is so can you explain section 230 of the communications decency act to us in layman's terms and why it's such a hot topic uh so for i'm not a lawyer I'm not even a student of the law uh, but I do try to understand 230 because it impacts my research. So as I understand it, um, Section 230 is a part of a broader law about communication and how communication channels will work in the U.S. And it says that providers of, and quote, interactive computer service, talk about a broad definition of social media, an interactive computer service um, provider can't be treated as a publisher of that information, um, which means that they're 230 says that the platforms are not responsible for what travels on the platform. Um, and so they can't be held liable for whatever nonsense you post online. Um, and how Trump made Section 230 part of, well, Trump and the, the conservatives mostly, they're saying like, we ought to rethink whether or not platforms have to let all content travel. Um, it was also sort of doing something about Section 230 was part of Elizabeth Warren's primary platform too. So it came on both sides of the aisle in the US. Um, it got amended in 2018, which was just to make, the only edit in 2018 was about sex work that you 
platforms could be held liable for conversations about sex work. And platforms have generally been held liable and they partner with the federal government around um, child and human trafficking. Um, but if it's not about sex or kids or human trafficking, it's fair game, like whatever the content is. Um, and so Trump wants to change 230 because he claims falsely that he has been denied some larger audience or denied some ability to say what he wants. Um, and the reason that I say is a false claim is that these are private companies that don't actually have any responsibility to carry our speech at all, that we have handed those responsibilities to them. Um, and because they're private companies, they get to decide. Just like when you walk into a restaurant, you don't get to yell and scream in the restaurant, the manager is gonna ask you to leave. The same is true on Facebook or could be, right? That Facebook could say, actually, I don't wanna hear you talk about the Michigan football team here, you have to leave. Um, and that would be within their rights. Um, what the changes or potential changes to 230 would mean is, do we actually want those to be the rights of platforms? And if we want platforms to have different rules, if we want them to have a different kind of responsibility for the information that is carried on them, um, then we would have to amend 230. One of the challenges to doing that is that if we start to say, if we start to make rules about what content platforms can allow to travel, we actually will make it harder for platforms, or we could make it harder for platforms to say, you can't talk about that here whatever the that is, right? If we say, if we start to hold them to something like a first amendment standard, or we try to do that, um, then platforms can't prioritize pro-social speech over anti-social speech, um, or they couldn't prioritize Michigan football over Ohio State football, like whether you wanna do that. Um, and so uh, making changes to 230 will not be an easy process, but I think that it's likely um, to get some attention in the next Congress so you mentioned, you know, responsibility and, and obviously we covered what the Center for Social Media Responsibility is focused on. And so I want to give you the opportunity to talk about the iffy quotient um, as okay. it relates to the platforms and um, the work you are trying to do. And then the responsibility of platform creators and, and owners to address misinformation. Sure. Um, so the iffy quotient is a project that preceded me at CSMR. So I'm, I know about it, but I wasn't part of its development. So I do have some limits to what I know. Uh, so as I understand it, the iffy quotient establishes a metric um, for how much sort of suspect content gets amplified on Facebook and Twitter. So not just what's there, but how much of it travels and how big does this problematic or sort of false content audience grow on those platforms. So once platforms, so this is me speaking as me, I should check with my colleagues at the center before I make any broader claims, but they chose the term iffy because the sites themselves, so the label goes on a site, which is like a domain level label, uh, and sites are labeled iffy if often they publish misinformation, where misinformation is information that's wrong and they know it's wrong. So it's not, they don't accidentally give you the wrong information. They give you the wrong information on purpose. Uh, and so we try to say, how often does that stuff get boosted in order for platforms to be able to say, are we making it too easy for this stuff to get boosted? Are we accelerating the spread and the reach, expanding the reach of these iffy suspect sites? Uh, and so then the iffy quotient 
website provides some sort of trends over time to show which of those sites are getting more or less traffic from Facebook and Twitter and how has that changed over time. One of the things that I think is interesting is that the total amount of iffy content relative to all content, it's rare. It's like 10% or less, um, but it's pretty robustly around 10%. Um, so one in 10 of the sites that gets boosted is suspect. Um, and that is pretty high. Facebook has done a little bit better uh, lately than Twitter has. I'm looking at our trend analysis, but there's also a pretty big gray area where it's not clearly okay and it's not clearly misinformation. And I think that that um, is much of where the problem comes for platforms. When there's something that's gray, it's really hard to make a rule about it. And so we don't like, even if they were able to tamp down that 10% that we know is iffy, and they're able to reduce the spread, which would require them to add some friction and change the user experience of their sites. So I don't think it's terribly likely in the short term, but even if they were able to do that, we've still got this 20 to 30% gray zone um, where some of the stuff that's in the gray zone is that people just disagree about whether or not it's true. So that might be a, we don't know yet. Um, and some of it might be that I don't like it. And so I wanna call it untrue. And those both show up in the gray zone, but they, the platforms have a different responsibility, I think, to show us information that we maybe don't want to see that's different from hiding information that's false or dangerous. And one of the things that the riots in DC showed us yesterday, um, and especially that much of the organizing for those riots took place in private Facebook groups and publicly on Twitter, uh, is that those who wish to do harm, even in the US, are not hiding. And so platforms should not be able to say anymore, we didn't know, or we didn't see them. Be like, I can see them, you can see them. We know that they're there. We know what it looks like when we see it and the platforms ought to as well. And that what we're asking in the Center for Social Media Research is for them to recognize that they have a responsibility to the public to not perpetuate dangerous, violent content on their sites. Absolutely. Well, we've run up on time, so I'm going to ask you my parting Whew. question, Okay, which I'm fascinated to hear your response to as, you know, someone that works in social media myself, but as a expert researcher, which you are, <laughs> on social media platforms, influence, and behavior, what do you tell your neighbor or friend or, you know, grandmother about how to leverage these platforms in a way that's responsible and you know what's that best practice guidance or wisdom that you share sure so earlier i said that uh dealing with social media and raising a small child are very similar and i'm going to come back to that here and my advice would be to pause whenever you encounter something on social media the first thing you should do is think about whether and how you want to respond if you see your friend's cute baby whether and how do you want to respond? Do I want to say, oh, I love your cute baby. I can't wait to do that. Why is that what you want to say? Well, to make my friend feel good and that's how I'm feeling. Okay, go for it. If you see some nonsense from one of your crazy relatives, think about what do you want to say and how do you want to respond? Um, and that if we're all able to do that, to just pause, Daniel Tiger says, take a deep breath and count to four, that would work too. Uh, that's what we can do. That if the platforms aren't gonna introduce any friction, they're not gonna slow the spread or scale down, 
we have to do it. And so I would say, use social media in ways that you find to make you feel better. And if you find that it's not making you feel better and you've paused to say, is this gonna help me feel better to do this? Will I feel good about myself as a person if I do it? Don't do it and encourage those around you to do the same. Um, and that that will be part of how we're able to benefit from being able to see our friends cute babies or to talk about the struggles of parenting during pandemic or to talk about how we might be feeling scared about the riots that happened yesterday. All of those social benefits from comes, can also come from social media. But yeah, my advice would be to pause first and think about how you wanna respond. And then sometimes you will decide not to, and that would be okay too. We, we can only hope that everyone will take that <laughs> and, and think yeah, twice. I can only hope that I'll do that every time. Before it's they hard. There. That's exactly right. Well, Libby, thank you so much for your time. Um, you were very generous and this was a phenomenal conversation. I could talk to you all day, um, but it's been a, a real delight. So please have a wonderful afternoon. Thanks. You too. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.